From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. And I am Mira Nawulsi. Since the coup, more than 17 new prisons have been built. The population of uh, political detainees grew up to what's estimated to be 60,000 uh, political prisoners and detainees. We did some uh, research based on the numbers provided by the Cairo-based Nadim Center for um, the Rehabilitation of Victims of Violence, which is an anti-torture clinic. And we found out that in four years, during his first presidential term, the government, mainly the police and the army, are killing an average of 2.2 citizens per day. And on average, two citizens uh, die in custody uh, every week due to either negligence or the horrible conditions they are treated uh, with. This week, we speak with the exiled Egyptian socialist activist Hussam al-Hamalawi about the legacy of the Arab Spring in his country and in the Middle East and North Africa region. Despite the bleak economic situation and unspeakably ferocious political repression in Egypt, al-Hamalawi explains why he is still hopeful that in the long term, the revolution will survive and overcome. Stay with us. On January 25, 2011, after 18 days of non-stop mass protests, Egyptians finally ended the 30-year rule of the country's dictator, Hosni Mubarak. This year, on the eve of the 2011 revolution, Amnesty International released a report about the unprecedented wave of censorship and attack on freedom of speech. In the statement, the group's North Africa campaigns director noted that over the past year, people who have dared to criticize the government have been arrested and sent to prison, often held in solitary confinement or subjected to enforced disappearances, simply for posting their opinions on social media, giving media interviews, denouncing sexual harassment, and even for supporting certain football clubs. Eight years since the onset of that hopeful mass uprising, today Egypt is experiencing the largest crackdown on dissent in its modern history. We speak with exiled Egyptian activist Hossam al-Hamalawi about the legacy of the Arab Spring in his country and in the entire Middle East and North Africa region. Hossam al-Hamalawi is a longtime Egyptian socialist activist, journalist, and photographer who, for the past two decades, has been advocating and organizing for peaceful, radical change in his country. Exiled in Germany today, he is one of many survivors of the 2011 revolution, which succeeded in the historic feat of overthrowing the entrenched neocolonialist dictatorship of Hosni Mubarak. He spoke with Khalil Bendib from his home in Berlin. Hussam, since uh, the LCC coup in uh, 2013, which followed the disastrous experiment in democracy with Muslim brothers for a year, the pendulum has swung all the way back after a two-year interruption to Mubarak's rule, back to complete and unabashed dictatorship. As a deeply involved democracy and social justice activist, you've had to exile yourself. And as we know, the any earnest political opposition in Egypt has been met with murderous violence by the military. 
How would you say the current state of political repression compares with that under the rule of former dictator Hosni Mubarak? Eight years after the ouster of uh, Hosni Mubarak, it's uh, definitely a much worse situation. The, the Minister of Defense, Abdel Fattah Sisi, led a murderous coup in uh, July 2013 and uh, unleashed all the forces of the state against the uh, opposition. He started by the Muslim Brotherhood and the Islamist groups, but then the uh, crackdown expanded to the liberals and the secular left and uh, even to politicians who supported the coup uh, initially and were central and instrumental uh, to it. And, you know, the crackdown kept continuing against artists, against writers, against journalists, against bloggers, against members of the LGBTQ uh, community. He didn't uh, spare anyone. Since the coup, more than 17 new prisons have been built. The population of uh, political detainees grew up to what's estimated to be 60,000 uh, political prisoners and detainees. We did some uh, research based on the numbers provided by the Cairo-based Nadim Center for um, the Rehabilitation of Victims of Violence, which is an anti-torture clinic. And we found out that in four years, during his first presidential term, the government, mainly the police and the army, are killing an average of 2.2 citizens per day. And on average, two citizens uh, die in custody uh, every week due to either negligence or the horrible conditions uh, they are treated uh, with. In terms of censorship, never uh, we had such level of internet uh, surveillance and censorship. Hundreds of websites, to be more specific, more than 500 uh, websites are banned in Egypt at the moment. And most of them are for local and international human rights organizations, for what's left of the independent press in addition to political organizations' uh, websites. So definitely the situation is way, way much worse. In terms of the labor movement, the level of strikes, of course, plummeted since the era prior to the coup. Rarely do we get uh, strikes. I mean, wildcat strikes happen every now and then. Uh, most of the independent uh, trade unions have either been crushed or uh, bureaucratized. And it's it's not going or it's not looking well at all in terms of the industrial actions. And occasionally, industrial um, uh, action leaders are referred to uh, military tribunals, as it happened with uh, factories in Alexandria. So, so the situation is definitely, I mean, is looking bleak. And by the way, uh, the situation is bleak. In each uh, Arab country that did witness uh, an uprising. So it's Egypt. In the situation in Libya, eight years after the ouster of Gaddafi uh, by a genuine revolt that was followed by the intervention of NATO, the situation doesn't look well in Libya, where parts of the country are either witnessing a high level of activity by Islamic insurgents affiliated to ISIS or Al Qaeda. And they did control areas at some point. Other areas of the country are under the control of tribal militias. While in the east, the so-called Libya strongman, Field Marshal Haftar, who is a military officer backed by Egypt and the UAE, is launching his own war on terror and war on so-called illegal immigration with the, um, with the blessing of Europe and the West. 
But the behavior of his militias or his own army is no different really than, than ISIS or Al-Qaeda, according to videos that were leaked online. In Yemen, uh, where also a revolt uh, started against the dictator Ali Abdullah Saleh in the beginning of 2011, uh, did witness, um, I mean, uh, backlash uh, from the regime. And when the regime was on the verge of collapse, basically Saudi Arabia provided a safe exit for Ali Abdullah Saleh in exchange for uh, a transitional government that will continue the old regime's policies under different names. And this was happening in the midst of an insurgency by the Shia rebel, the Houthis, who took over the capital. And this was the excuse uh, through which the Saudis and the Emiratis have started their war on Yemen, which has turned into one of the world's most horrible humanitarian disasters at the moment. Uh, in Bahrain, another Arab country that witnessed uh, an uprising yes. by both Sunnis and Shia. Also, uh, a brutal crackdown happened from the regime, and uh, which with, recalled... With the yeah, intervention of Saudi Arabia and other Gulf exactly. states. Yes. And they have put down the revolt. And today there are thousands in Bahraini jails who are facing torture, facing execution. Activists are being stripped of their nationality their citizenship, and they are thrown in Iraq, uh, outside the country. Wow. Uh, extrajudicial killings uh, are happening, so the situation doesn't look good. And another country is Syria, where, of course, like I don't need to get into details about what yes. the situation is like in Syria today. Tunisia is usually presented as the model of success for a transition, simply because it did not turn into a military conflict and no wide-scale massacres uh, happened. And there is still, I mean, you can still vote for the president and the government, unlike other Arab countries that witnessed uprisings. But at the same time, there is still a lot of frustration. The question of social justice has not been addressed. Unemployment is soaring. Police brutality still continues to be an issue. There are definitely reforms that had been granted in Tunisia, but they do not meet the expectations uh, of the revolutionaries. So overall, the situation might look bleak, but should we despair? Is there any reasons or, or any uh, thing in the horizon that would make us hopeful? I would actually argue against despair, and I would still say that there is hope. And my, my views or my, my feelings towards this is not based on uh, wishful thinking, or some revolutionary fantasies, but they are based on the laws of history and the laws of revolutions. Exactly, Hussam. I may have told you this before, but in 2012, I was doing a press conference in Paris on my book, Zahra's Paradise, which is about Iran in 2009, was a precursor for the Arab Spring. And some mm -hmm. French journalists asked me this very question you're asking. And you, they were already impatient because it had been maybe all of six months or, or a year since Egypt has started its revolution, it wasn't completed. I asked them, excuse me, but how long did the French Revolution take to come to some fruition? And they said, oh, about 100 years. So I asked them, why do you expect Egypt to finish it in six months or even six years? And we were all sitting at this cafe at Place de la Bastille, just completely coincidentally. So I, I agree with you, the historical context is very important, and we'll come back to these reasons for hope. But in the meantime, I was going to ask you, how is the population in Egypt, which has 
met with so much bloodshed, the complete massacres, thousand people massacre at one point, right? Uh, if I remember right after the, the coup, how is the population uh, reacting under this complete totalitarian dictatorship? Is there any remaining resistance? How are people coping? Initially with the coup, Sisi had whipped up the paranoia and the security scare among the public. And it was one of those moments where there was fascist hysteria everywhere, uh, ignited and, and incited by also the state-run and the privately-run mainstream media in Egypt. So despite the initial massacres that happened in July and in August, including, as you said, in one day, the killing of roughly 1,000, but according to Human Rights Watch, they have put the number to at least 817 protesters in Rabah and the Nahda squares, that's on the 14th of August, there was still mass support for Sisi. These were very difficult times, but uh, gradually this support has been fading. And on the one hand, you cannot keep up this fascist hysteria and public security scare for long. People started their stomachs to turn with the extent and the continuation of the massacres. As soon as the, the crackdown and its scope widened, this meant that even like supporters of Sisi, they started having like either family members being taken wrong by the police, although they are not involved in any kind of activities. So people were getting disillusioned gradually. And of course, I mean, the cutting edge was the economic performance. When Sisi carried out his coup, the dollar was roughly six Egyptian pounds, was around that figure. I mean, today, the dollar is roughly around 18 Egyptian pounds. Um, Three times There worse. is devaluation. Mm. Exactly. There is devaluation. There is uh, the elimination of subsidies and very aggressive neoliberal reforms. To please the IMF, um, among other people, yeah. To fit into that economic orthodoxy, which has rained only pain on all these countries that had these IMF uh, loans. Exactly. I'm sure you and your listeners are all familiar with uh, what austerity means, with what neoliberal reforms means. And in Egypt, this has been happening hand in hand with the increasing intervention of the army in the civilian economy. The army was already a player in the civilian economy. Uh, our military factories do not only produce weapons and bombs. They also produce utensils. They produce cheese. They produce dairy products. They produce things that they compete with other civilian uh, companies with in the market. But the army business is relieved from uh, all taxes and from all tariffs. And they use conscripts for their work, which is like slave labor. So this gives the army a competitive edge. So imagine like even way more intervention of the army in the economy. I do not have figures because like right now in Egypt, there is very opaqueness uh, when it comes to uh, the freedom of information. But this is like noticed by everyone. They also own a lot of real estate and are involved in that business. Indeed, they are involved in, in the real estate business. I mean, basically they are involved in everything. And on other occasions, they get involved via frontmen, by like businessmen who are known to be like the money launderers, for example, for uh, the army. You know, Hossam, where I come from, Algeria, during the bloody civil war of the 1990s, 
and which extremists were threatening a wide swath of the civilian population, a terrible brain drain happened, and the country suffered its worst hemorrhage of intellectual and artistic people ever. Has anything comparable happened in Egypt? Uh, of course, there is now an Egyptian diaspora. Thousands of Egyptians uh, have fled the country, whether it's uh, because they are uh, politically, they are dissidents and they are wanted back home, or simply they have become so demoralized by the situation in Egypt, so they left. Now, like there is like capitals in exile. Some would say Berlin is one of those capitals. Istanbul in Turkey is another capital. But this is not only happening for the Egyptians. There is like an increasingly Arab diaspora mm. where in the countries that witnessed uprisings followed by defeats. So given the incredibly fierce backlash from the regime, both in Egypt and Syria and other Arab countries, was this a mistake in the short term? Under the Muslim Brothers in 2012, there already was plenty of violence and against political opposition and against the Christian minority, but they were at least not as brutal as what followed. Do you think that the 2013 coup, which was, as you were saying, popular when it happened, was a mistake for Egypt? Uh, was it a big setback? Or was this a necessary step somehow? In Algeria, certainly people who backed the military against the Islamists in 1991 uh, regretted what happened following that. They were scared of the Islamists, who were certainly terribly anti-democratic. But what followed the, the civil war was so bloody that people regretted not letting the Islamists try their hand at, at governing. Was there something similar like that in Egypt? What do you think? Yes, I mean, of course, the military coup was catastrophic. And if time goes back and there was any way that we could have uh, stopped it, you know, then definitely <laughs> I'm for it. And many people in Egypt regret uh, supporting Sisi and his coup in the beginning. And this is not just among sections of the political activist community but also among large sections of the population. This is not to say that the Muslim Brotherhood rule was something really good back then, and that Morsi was moving in the direction of achieving and fulfilling the goals of the revolution. After all, it was Morsi who, I mean, honored the army generals, refused to hold any of them accountable, increased the military expenditure for the police and rearmed them. And he's the one who brought Sisi as Minister of Defense uh, yes. to start with. Yes, that's true. So some people like myself, I mean, I did support impeaching Morsi and the mass protests that happened, but we had then raised the slogan at the time, down with all of those who betrayed mm. the revolution, mm. the military, the remnants of the old regime, and the ikhwan. But to be honest, this, this was even like a very naive stand to take at the time because the nature of the mobilization itself was reactionary. It, so it wasn't like one of those situations where you have people all over the streets and you are hoping that you can make an intervention and take this somewhere else. More or less, the nature of the mobilization was reactionary. But at the same time, this is not to try to paint Morsi as some Salvador Allende uh, or, or to present him, you know, I mean, as some Mandela, you know, I mean, like what some of the Islamists are doing. 
But uh, definitely I'm against the persecution of the Islamists and against the crackdown that happened against them by the army. And more or less, uh, we are now all victims of this uh, crackdown. But they still, I would say, they bear some historical responsibility into how this situation uh, has led us into, together with the secular leftist and liberal opposition, which formed the so-called Salvation Front and engineered this coup with Sisi and formed the first two cabinets uh, that were uh, created after the coup. I mean, there are several parties to be blamed for the situation we are in today, not just the army. That is Egyptian activist and journalist Hossam El-Hamalawi speaking with Khalil Bendib about the legacy of the Arab Spring in his country and in the entire Middle East and North Africa region. We'll hear more after a break. funny you mentioned Salvador Allende because I was going to ask you my next question about <laughs> the parallels with, with Pinochet. Today's Sisi regime really, to me, feels like a caricature. And as you know, I'm cartoonist. I'm in the business of caricature. Yeah. Down to the very Pinochet impression that Sisi seems to be so proud of doing with his military cap and his dark sunglasses. <laughs> the first thing that when I saw the first few pictures of that, I was saying, this guy's a comedian. He's pretending he's a new Pinochet, the way he's holding his head. This is an extreme version of a totalitarian regime, way past what Mubarak was doing before it. And yeah. uh, and even it's not just against the political repression, as you're saying, not just in its even more overt alliance with Israel, but also in its complete surrender to the IMF agenda this, and its subservience to Saudi Arabia. I mean, it, it offered to return, quote-unquote, this part of, I know who really uh, historically owns this, but to Saudi Arabia. But the Sisi supporters, those who are still supporting the regime, will argue that for all its faults, this is a regime that at least has brought some, back uh, some semblance of stability. Uh, I would strongly disagree. First, it's important to remember that what Pinochet did in his uh, in his rule that lasted for roughly two decades. I mean, Sisi has already done it in a much shorter time. And yeah. like, you know, in the first couple of years, he killed, you know, I mean, the same casualty as what Pinochet did in 18 years. Um, Which was about 3000 people, if I remember. Or, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And as I told you, then the rate of killings averaged on like two persons or 2.2 persons per day. Mm. And this is still continuing with us till today. Although Sisi used to discredit his enemies from the revolutionary camp, us, as agents of the U.S. and Israel, but never has Egypt and its 
time of existence have had uh, closer relations with Israel as it is today. It reached the extent that Sisi has allowed the Israeli Air Force to operate directly in Sinai. Which uh, is now to... uh, supposedly part of Egypt. Back is... Yes, <laughs> of, of course. So, you know, the whole uh, army legacy rests on the fact that they have managed to reclaim Sinai, you know, from uh, the Israeli occupation. But uh, today, I mean, it's the same army that's allowing the Israelis to operate in Sinai to target alleged ISIS uh, militants. And uh, since 2013, Israel has been uh, carrying out airstrikes using drones and using F-16s. And this has been documented by local journalists in Sinai, as well as the international press. I mean, already the New York Times has reported uh, the issue. Bloomberg has reported the issue. And it's not a secret anymore in the Washington circles. Of course, the regime here and its cronies, I mean, they still continue to deny this. So, yeah, I mean, the situation is, is really very bad at the moment. But, I mean, is that a reason to completely give up hope? What I will try to argue, actually, I mean, tonight is that th there is still some reasons for hope. A revolution is a process. In order for us to reach 2011, uh, it took at least an entire decade of mobilization that preceded it. There is an umbilical cord between the year 2000, which witnessed the outbreak of the Palestinian Intifada, mm. uh, and the year 2011, which mm. witnessed, you know, I mean, the Arab revolutions. Mm. It took us an entire decade, uh, Khalil, of first mobilizing around uh, Palestinian issues and the anti-Iraq war movement. This metamorphosed into the Kifaya uh, or the Enough movement against Mubarak. The political mobilizations that were happening in the country indirectly uh, spilled its militancy to the working class. And starting from December 2006, we started getting the textile strikes. And by 2008, we already had too many uprisings. The first one was April 2008 in the city of Mahalla. And the second one was in the following month in the city of Brolos. 2009-2010, the labor strikes continued in addition to the anti-police brutality protests till we reached 2011. Now, in each country, not just Egypt, that witnessed an uprising, they had their own process that has been brewing beneath the surface mm. for at least uh, a decade. Now, what gives me hope is that there are other countries in the region who have been going through their own processes, but did not reach the level of an uprising. Countries, for example, like Sudan, which witnessed protests in 2011 and 2012, but did not really reach the level of a revolution, then they got way more militant uh, protests in September 2013, and today, as we're speaking, Khalil, there is a revolution happening in Sudan yes. that has entered its seventh week mm -hmm. now. And all the Arab rulers are freaking out. I mean, even those who were on very bad terms with al-Bashir, everyone is now praying among the Arab rulers that they do not get another revolution. What is causing this depression in Egypt and the lack of revival of any revolutionary activity, which will continue for a long time, by the way. This is not going to happen anytime soon, a recovery. And the same goes also for the other Arab countries that witnessed uprisings. 
is the fact that, number one, they have been crushed very brutally with thousands killed, thousands jailed, and all revolutionary organizations and entities being destroyed. But also, the people need confidence. The people need hope. The people need to see that if they revolt, they are not going to end up with another 2013. So you just need one successful model in the region, once again, to reignite this hope, to give the, the, the Egyptian people confidence that if you start mobilizing again, you will not necessarily end up with a military coup. Look at Sudan. They have managed to do it. Other Arab countries, by the way, that have been going through their own processes, and I see some revolutionary potential uh, in them, is Morocco, for yeah. example. Yes which did witness protests in 2011, 2012, but they were quickly quelled by a mixture of repression as well as process of reform. Co-optation. Exactly, they were co-opted. Yes. But look at Morocco in 2017 and look at Harak al-Reef. Yes. This is very promising and this could evolve. Another country is Jordan. Jordan that also witnessed protests in 2011, 2012, Last summer, in June, they witnessed mass protests that managed to overthrow the government. And I, in, in a, it's very rare to hear chants against the king himself. And, and there were chants against the king in the last protests that also got reignited again last December, but maybe not on the same scale. But I see that there is a potential. Now, if a revolution or a successful uprising happens, in any of those countries, or in countries that are going through some political uncertainty, like for example, Algeria, yes. where you mm. have a living zombie that will run for elections, you know, <laughs> Bouteflika, uh, you know, and, and, uh, but this is, this is a sign that actually the gods in Olympus, they are not strong enough to continue with the rule that they have to depend on this mummy. What will happen in any of those countries can once again tilt the balance to the favor of revolution. And this is the thing that's keeping the hope uh, alive for me. Yes, and so the seeds for the long term, perhaps medium term, have been planted. And as we both know, it's very difficult to push the genie right back into the bottle for very long. People have discovered that things are possible. You're able to overthrow the, the worst dictators. It's happened in at least three countries, with varying, uh, four countries if you count Yemen, yeah. varying degrees of success. It's not enough to overthrow the dictator, unfortunately. <laughs> but it's they possible. Were that they got rid, yeah, they, have, they were happy that they, were, they got rid of Mubarak and the heads of states, but the regimes uh, were there. And uh, the, the question of the military will always be the, um, uh, the central question. Yes. How do you deal with the armies? in those countries. Now, in the case of Egypt, large sections of the revolutionary community were naive enough to trust the army, uh, which is the backbone of the dictatorship to start with. Right. But from the level of discussions, Khalil, that I'm seeing among the Sudanese at the moment, I see way more maturity than us back in 2011, not only because they have their own proud revolutionary tradition, but they have also seen our mistakes, and I think that they are learning also. And so has uh, Tunisia. Tunisia midstream, when the first legitimately elected government, just as in Egypt, was a, a Muslim Brotherhood type of, a Nahda is called, 
type of movement. Yeah. They learned from Egypt when they saw the, the coup in 2013, they decided perhaps they should be a little bit more flexible than Morsi had been. And they managed to avoid that sort of break that Egypt has seen. So as you're saying, the peoples in these countries are nimble. They're learning from one another. And I agree with you, that's a source of hope. In Tunisia, as you said, the basic problem of inequality and social injustice is still there. It hasn't made any progress. But at least on the formal level of an actual democracy, just like you have in the Western world, it has made some important progress. It, it's not reverted to a dictatorship as Egypt or other countries have. But in both Egypt and Tunisia, there are deep reservoirs of progressive forces, as you've over the years documented to us, but they don't seem to be able to gel yet when it comes time to vote or to organize enough to change the country, at least in the short term. And regressive forces such as the Muslim Brothers always seem to demonstrate more energy and better organization. It was heartbreaking during the, the one legitimate presidential election that brought Morsi to power to see the inability of progressives like yourself to translate their passion into direct and immediate electoral results. What explains that, in your opinion? There was a time when the left had the upper hand, and this was in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, up until the mid-1970s. But basically, the left uh, failed. It was heavily influenced by Stalinism and by nationalism. Mm. And on every twist and turn, it failed. In the countries it reached power, it did not perform well. And in other countries where they got into alliances and popular fronts with sections of their nationalist army officers, we all know how did that uh, end up. This created a vacuum through which the Islamists rose, although of course they had roots, you know, older than that, but that's when they really picked up, inspired also by the success of the Iranian revolution in the late uh, 1970s. And in parts, they were also encouraged by the regimes themselves to act as a counterweight to the leftists. They grew, they had the upper hand in the 1980s, 1990s, and the beginning of the 2000s. The left in the Arab world, I mean, they started their revival, more or less, with the Palestinian Intifada. And unfortunately, we were not as successful in creating roots the previous decade before the 2011 uh, Arab Spring uh, revolutions, uh, so as to act as a serious counterweight uh, for the Islamists. You can say, you know, it's a problem of time. You can say also it's a, a problem of the different strategies that were adopted by the left. In the case of Tunisia, I think actually the performance of the left was better than in the Arab world. They did play a central role in the Federation of Trade Unions in Tunisia, which brought down Ben Ali. It was the central uh, reason why uh, the uprising in Tunisia succeeded. And this federation of trade unions... Also the fact, still, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but also the fact that the military refused to follow Ben Ali when it came down uh, to us. Indeed, but the militaries are not angels. I mean, why they did not follow Ben Ali? Because they saw it's a, it's a failed fight. Why did the military in Egypt, you know, like basically told Mubarak, you know, game over, and they removed Mubarak? 
it's because the system was about to collapse. Mm. So, you know, only three weeks ago, Tunisia had a, a general strike that was led also by the Federation. Yeah, um, so it is mm. exactly. So it, it's still an active player. In Egypt, the performance of the left in the revolution, while definitely there were successes and victories and uh, routes that were created, but many sections of the Egyptian left did support the coup and they supported the massacres like the Egyptian Communist Party, the, the Egyptian Social Democratic Party, the Egyptian Workers and Peasants Party, the Egyptian Socialist Party. All of those had issued even a statement in Arabic saying, Ayn al-Fadd, where is the suspension, accusing the government of having uh, second thoughts and trembling hands, as they called it, uh, when it comes to uh, suspending the Rabah and the Nada protests. So they incited for the massacres that happened. That will definitely create bad blood for the left in the future. And it has discredited uh, itself even further. I hope that this will not be the general case. And at least for the leftist factions that stood against the massacres and tried to keep integrity when it comes to being faithful and loyal to the goals of the revolution in the face of the Islamists and in the face of the military, would have a voice uh, in the future. But it's definitely not a picnic. Working under dictatorship that's even way worse than it was before the revolution is not an easy thing to do. But uh, at the same time, history teaches us that it's not impossible. And I'm very hopeful about the future. It seems to me that by the time the Arab Spring reached Syria, Arab dictators like Sisi and Assad and some of the others had drawn the wrong conclusions from it or the wrong lessons that somehow Ben Ali and Mubarak had not been fierce enough and that the only way to remain in power is complete scorched earth policy and complete savagery towards their own populations. But the Arab world is not a closed uh, world. It's not isolated from the rest of the world. When you look at the wider world post-2008, the, the big economic crisis that started in the United States, it's also, the, the rest of the world also is experiencing more authoritarianism, less democracy. The large countries like the U.S., Brazil, Philippines, China, and even by their own narrow standards, China is getting more authoritarian, Russia. So the whole world seems to be going through a new shifting paradigm of more authoritarianism. Oligarchies all over the world, not just in the Arab world, seem to be ascendant at the moments we speak. And so do you see a link between the backlash in Syria, Egypt, Yemen, etc., and the negative trend for democracy in the rest of the world? I mean, the second law of revolution after, you know, number one, revolution is a process. Number two, the domino effect always rules. Mm. Uh, victories, they spread by the domino effect, and losses, they also spread by the domino effects. Once Tunisia, I mean, fell, uh, a revolution in Egypt broke out, Yemen, Bahrain, protests all over. This even, you know, at the time, if you remember 2011, there were general strikes in Southern Europe. Yes, inspired, uh, in, inspired you know, by, yeah. movement. I remember the yeah. Egyptians buying pizza for the guys in Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> so there was, yes, uh, yeah, it was a lovely moment. And the moment. guys in Wisconsin were uh, raising, you know, banners that were saying American Tahrir. That's right. Even in but, Israel, there, there was Tahrir, even in Israel, Ben-Gurion Avenue or somewhere in Tel Aviv. Yeah, I mean, what happened in Israel was, of course, a way more 
peculiar situation since it is happening still within a settler colonial society. Yes. So the level of rebellion, even among the youth, you know, would be in some parallel universe, you know, I mean, than ours. But anyways, defeats also spread by the domino effect. Uh, it's not a coincidence that the first chemical attack in Syria, for example, happened following the military coup in Egypt. This viciousness that Bashar felt confident about going in and finishing the Syrian revolution or uh, like fending off his position was the fact that there was a coup in Egypt and a counter-revolution that was successful. I mean, also coincided with the rise of the right everywhere. And they do find one another inspiring. In the same way that the far right in Europe looked at Donald Trump's uh, ascendance as an inspiration. Also, I mean, the same goes for the far right and Bashar in Syria, whom they deem as a hero. They all feed one another at the end of the day. That's why I always tell comrades around the world that the best solidarity you can give to the Arab revolution is to have a revolution in your own countries or even to weaken and to shake the system in your own countries that at the end of the day sponsor the regimes that we have in the region. And this will indirectly help us. I remember talking with you and one of our interviews about Occupy Oakland. I don't know if this was in 2012 or 2013, but there was a, a brief period when we had the distinct impression that the leaders in Oakland were looking at what was happening across the world in Egypt and vice versa. The, the two were comparing notes. Yeah. And sure enough, at some point, I think it was Sisi or Morsi, I think it was Morsi actually, who moved against some protesters in a brutal way. Immediately, a couple of days later, the Oakland mayor and police department just moved against their own people here in Oakland. It was really quite impressive to see those kind of correlations. Maybe they're in our minds, but they seemed also real interesting, yeah. interesting coincidences. Indeed, and, and people all the time draw parallels um, in the same way that there were I think in, in one of the crackdowns in 2011 on the movement in the Bay Area, they did shut down telecommunication, I think, at the BART. And people, you know, were joking about this and were saying, so when are they going to send the camels? That's um, right. <laughs> That's true. So, you know, I mean, the analogies, you know, can, can always uh, be invoked. Yeah. I think it's more than an analogy. We're living in a globalized world for better or for worse. And instant yeah. communication, instant media uh, really make things possible. Hossam, you've expressed uh, hope for the future, and it's very good to hear from someone like yourself in front row of this revolution in Egypt. And now you live in Berlin. I don't know, you're in East Berlin or West Berlin? Or what used to be East Berlin versus West Berlin? No, I'm living in West Berlin. At West the Berlin, because yeah. I'm reminded how the Stasi once ruled the place very close to where you live. And now yeah. it has this worldwide reputation for one of the most welcoming political and cultural environments in the world. Does it comfort you uh, on some level, <laughs> perhaps subconscious, to know that not so long ago, freedom of speech and expression was so limited, so terribly limited over there where you're living now. Does it reinforce that, that hope for the future? Uh, it is, in I mean, country? inspiring. Maybe I should correct first an information of my stay here. I was actually in the East. Now I'm in the West. And, you know, the difference could still be felt mm. when it comes to the struggle of the Germans to bring down the authoritarian state in the East here. 
it is very inspiring and I draw parallels also all the time and it is a historical experience to look into. But remember also that we are in difficult times where the far right and the right in general is on the rise. Mm. So this means that when it comes to free speech, you're not really free to speak about Palestine, for example, in Germany. Mm. It's being criminalized. BDS is, is demonized, it's under attack, and whoever like brings up the issue is faced with a chorus of accusations about anti-Semitism, which is not the case. No small charge in Germany. That's a huge stain. Taking the bloody history when it comes to the treatment of the Jews here, of course, it's not a light accusation. There is also the rise of racism here in Germany. I mean, it which has existed, but now the issue of the refugees and migration is being used as cards among the far right to shift the entire discourse to the right uh, here in Germany. And racism is increasingly becoming mainstream here, which is another fight. You're always faced with fights anywhere. And it's also linked back to the Middle East to a certain extent with the terrible exodus that happened from Syria. And that indeed. has reinforced this racist tendency in Europe. Indeed, indeed, they're all connected. Well, Hossam, I didn't push you on this because this may be personal, but I will ask you as a last question, maybe you might want to share on your personal level why you think you had some theories on what happened to you as, as an activist there. And I didn't ask you to go into detail about that. Is that something you, you want to share before we close? I mean, these are all, I mean, speculation. I mean, there are definitely facts, which is in 2013, in 2014, Sisi was very busy with the Islamists at the time, who were the immediate direct danger to his new regime. By the time he started cracking down on leftists, secular activists later, I think he started by the ones that basically used to have some sort of communication with the army. Those who were actually hardcore dissidents who did not sit with the army or did not have any communication with the army, unlike the conventional wisdom which will tell you, oh, these will be the ones that are firstly targeted. Actually, no. Your enemies usually, they go after those who had, I mean, half-baked uh, situations, who used to play, you know, I mean, on all sides. It's very easy to, to, to crack down upon them. And I am, and I'm honored to be among the group of activists who were from day one against the army from the start of the revolution. And I never had any illusions about them. And I refused to have uh, any direct channels or contacts with them. So my, my turn, I think, was, was deferred. But definitely, you know, I mean, it, uh, it has come. Um, I mean, I did receive uh, threats. They did target, I mean, uh, my family in Egypt. And, you know, I mean, at the moment, it, it is uh, definitely a very bad situation for people like me who are on the left in Egypt. I already have people I personally know from the leftist ranks who are in prison. And I don't expect the situation to improve at any time soon. But such a revolutionary recovery is a function of what's happening in the rest of the region, as we were talking earlier. You mentioned this uh, terrible, vicious repression of going not, not only after the activists themselves, but going after their families uh, as an additional disincentive to be active, which reminds me of what the situation in Tunisia used to be in the 80s. The first president and dictator, uh, 
Habib Bourguiba, when he left the scene because he was senile and Ben Ali did this soft coup against him and took over, the Tunisians were complaining that Ben Ali was so much worse than Bourguiba because Bourguiba did not go after the families. When he didn't like your challenge to his rule, he would throw you in jail but not bother your family, whereas Ben Ali had no such qualms. Ben Ali would go after the family if you thought you were safely ensconced in, in Paris or, or London, he would still get at you by, just like the mafia, I guess, by going after your family. Uh, this is a practice in Egypt that has been very common under Mubarak, especially in the 1990s. My first uh, detention experience was in the year 2000, and in my cell there were uh, alleged uh, jihadis, but they were not jihadis. They were relatives, actually, with, of jihadi suspects, of course. I mean, we'd never know. And part of the state security crackdown and intimidation against those uh, suspected jihadis was to round up all the male members in the families. So we did have, I mean, this practice under Mubarak, but it was never as strong as it is, of course, today. I mean, what's happening now is is state terrorism on steroids uh, compared to Mubarak's uh, era. So, Hussein, I want to thank you very much for spending the whole hour with me. If, if you have any last statement that you'd like to share with us. Well, as always, it's an honor to speak to you, Khalil, and your listeners. And, you know, what I can, I mean, at least say in, in the end is that the U.S., where most of your listeners uh, are located, is one of the main sponsors of the Sisi regime. And part of why Sisi is cracking down on us on such a mass scale is that he's confident that he has international backing. Uh, while we do not expect anything positive coming out of the U.S. government, but we always look forward to the solidarity and support of the U.S. civil society in terms of labor unions, in terms of community organizations, in terms of student unions, uh, activists of all shades. Lobby your congressmen into stopping the military aid uh, to Egypt. Lobby your congressmen into pressuring the government into halting this flow of arms and security cooperation with the dictatorship in Egypt. That will be the biggest favor that you can do us. Hossam El-Hamalawi is an exiled Egyptian socialist activist and journalist based in Berlin. He spoke with Khalil Bendib. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razorzan. <laughs> Hurry, 
مش لومة صخرة بيجي بعديها أي حقوق لومة عيش الناس الأمراء الفلاح والعامل يابا لومة عيش مش لومة صخرة هناخدها لو مش بالذوق عيش حرية عدالة اجتماعية عيش حرية عدالة اجتماعية عيش حرية عدالة اجتماعية لما تقول كلمة حرية لازم ترفع ايدك فوق الحرية لقمة هنية تيجي بعديها اي حقوق لما تقول كلمة حرية لازم ترفع ايدك فوق الحرية لقمة هنية هناخدها لو مش بالذوق هناخدها لو مش بالذوق هناخدها لو مش بالذوق Azme, a Syrian-born internationally celebrated clarinetist and composer, has been hailed as a multifaceted artist who's known for distinctive sound and intensely spirited performances. His discography includes three albums with his ensemble, Hiwar, and an album with his New York Arabic jazz quartet, the Kinan Azme. City Band. Kinan serves as an artistic director of the Damascus Festival Chamber Players, a pan-Arab ensemble dedicated to contemporary music from the Arab world. He is also a member of the Yo-Yo Ma Silk Road Ensemble, with whom he was awarded a Grammy in the year 2017. The Syrian uprising in March of 2011 affected him so profoundly he stopped composing for a year. He told St. Albert Gazette, What I experienced was more complex and deeper than I could express. I was engaged in emotions that I had never felt before. By 2012, I was writing music. I wanted to bring all these thoughts to the public to experience or explain emotions we can't explain in real life. Kinan's new double CD titled Uneven Sky incorporates improvisations performed with the Deutsches Symphony Orchestra of Berlin and Yo-Yo Ma on cello. Kinan will perform with the Iranian singer Sapideh Vahidi Friday, February 8th at 8 p.m. at the Freight and Salvage in Berkeley. For more information, please check out thefreight.org. From Pacifica Radio, I'm Mira Nabulsi.
that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast and Jadalia Izin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening.